Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 11th of June with myself, Andries Vantanar, and my colleagues Simon Thompson, Peter White, and Harry Morgan. Harry, you put um, the, uh, the the research story on uh, 30 gigawatts of solar as, as the lead. It's quite an interesting time for solar in the sense that economies are starting to reopen and there hasn't necessarily been this massive change in, in order intake. But I think as Andrew sort of puts really well and has done over the past few weeks, is really focused on the fact that actually solar installations over the next year will probably be restricted by polysilicon supply. So, um, yeah, and I thought that was it was a really interesting take. And I thought, uh, yeah, Andrew's always put quite a lot of work into it. Yeah, Andrew. So, I mean, I know you've you've suffered with uh, this um, the, the the hard limits of, of 2021, and other people forecasting outside those hard limits. Um, where this this quarter, just walk us through the quarter and, and what what it suggests is going to end up for 2021. Uh, well, the quarterly figures show that what we were already hearing, but it shows us puts a number on it, which is that the first quarter was stronger was 50% stronger than the first quarter of 2020. It was also stronger than quarter two and quarter three of 2020. What this shows is the demand this year is far higher which is why the polysilicon is so limited. It's why it's the limiting factor, because suddenly people are struggling to build new polysilicon plants in time. I haven't changed, uh, despite the polysilicon threat, which there's enough polysilicon to, to physically make about 193 gigawatts. So it's not a hard limit in that sense, but it, it is an economic limit because it's pushing up the module price. Uh, projects are already being delayed in India. I've heard that some projects are being delayed in the EU and China as well. But that doesn't mean it'll be a week yet. That's just a limiting factor that means it won't be quite as strong as those. OK, so if we were 50% up proposals. on this year, on last year, that would that would break the limit, would it? That would break the physical limit, yes. So that would bring us to about 210 or, or yes. you know, something like that. OK, and we're saying more like 178. Yes. It might be lower than that. It probably won't be higher than that. But I, I want to stick with my existing prediction and see if that works, because because the way this polysilicon sort of economic limit happens is it's only happening and it can only happen if there's lots of demand. So it can never produce a low demand here. It's, it's like I said, it's purely a limiting factor. So, um, I mean, we're seeing... I mean, the percentage demands were under 5% increase in China, USA, um, under 10% in India, under 5% in Japan. So all the other spikes, I mean, you've got a huge spike in Chile. Mm. Um, Well, that's actually not a percentage increase on quarterly. That's just that's an increase. That's how big this quarter's development is compared to the entire capacity entire install base. base i see yeah i see okay uh, if you're talking about that one graph which does okay. look very nice it is a good graph and it what it shows is this huge spike for chile because they, they have 4.5 4, 4.8 gigawatts installed but one gigawatt uh, 1.3 gigawatts of that was installed just in this quarter so i went into a lot of the countries in this article probably wasted a bit of time on that but it was definitely worth doing for chile because it's very strange. They've had this enormous boom. They were the sixth biggest market this quarter, despite being a nation of 20 million people. And I think what happened is the Chilean electricity market, because it has this sort of, you could say, hyper-capitalist history, I think they still have capacity market with diesel generators, which is another oddity. And as the pandemic's effects on the economy fade, uh, demand goes up and these diesel generators, which are very expensive, become a significant part of the energy supply. And I think the electricity price may have doubled 
And so this huge sudden quarterly surge, I initially assumed it must be a few projects. Uh, it's actually rooftop, mostly rooftop. Okay, so it's, it's the, the, amb the amb ambient price of electricity reminds everybody, oh yeah, I, I need to get um, some, some solar on my roof because it's too expensive to buy it at these prices. Yeah, I, I don't know what the payoff period for rooftop solar was before, but it must have gone down by about 40%. Especially in Chile, I mean, given it, it's you know the irradiance there, it's um, it's um, very strong. Um, well, I think I think it's average in the Santiago, Santiago, the the sort of inhabited area. Okay. Well, relatively more average. Maybe it's Californian or something. The question that remains is, if supply was unlimited and unconstrained, how high would solar go? At this point in time so we have to have a different um, forecast element um, underlying sort of demand you know we're, we're, uh, presumably if there could be 210 uh, gigawatts of uh, polysilicon available 210 silico uh, gigawatts of solar i mean solar would be cheaper because polysilicon wouldn't be constrained and all some other source materials and as a result, there would be two something like 210. I mean, is there the demand for that? Is, I mean, I'm torn between by manipulating the end user price. And as a result, they sell all of the capacity. This is a something we saw in things like uh, flat television screen markets. You, know, you double your capacity. But if that means the price has to go down by 35%, so be it. As long as you sell everything you make and they, they manipulate the price for late late part of the year to clear inventory and things like that so i imagine the same thing will go on in solar but but what would be the top end of that yeah i think 210 is is, is the right one i mean that's the highest forecast we've seen from anyone else before realizing that oh, the polysilicon makes that an impossibility and like you say if you extrapolate from our figure for last year which is 146.5 gigawatts and you say, well, this year's quarter one is 50% larger, and that's mostly before any polysilicon price increases affected the market. Not to mention the other prices, like uh, glass was high for a bit, shipping costs are higher. That will get you to 210. So, yeah, I agree. I agree that that's where the demand side and is. What, and is there pent-up demand from this year? I mean, are we going to see 20 gigawatts extra next year because it couldn't be done this year? And well, actually, that, that does raise a question of how much of this sudden demand surge is stuff that couldn't be installed yet last year. That might be interesting. I don't think it's that much, though. So, yeah, maybe there will be some pent up demand. I mean, India is definitely an example of that. Yeah, I think so. There's there must be a few places. I think Japan may be a bit suppressed in terms of its rooftop installations by the lockdowns. As our lead analyst on solar, you have to have in your mind you know, a 2022 figure soon and a 2023 figure. And they have to be, they have to fit with both the amount that's of manufacturing that's coming on stream and with uh, developer demand and, and end user demand in uh, uh, on rooftops. And I'd be intrigued to see um, where we get. Let's, with that, let's move on. Let's look at the next story. Um, oh, the wind catching system. I mean, Harry, just like to admit your prejudice here. You started looking at this thinking, no, this can't be true. Because the tradition, you're a traditionalist when it comes to wind. You like the three blade rotor uh, and the big tower. But you, I think you were kind of vacillated on this. Talk us through wind catching. 
You're right. I probably did approach it. I suppose in the way the many sort of the, uh, of the I'd say the fossil fuel analysts suddenly refused to admit that there's going to be any change in their industry. I probably looked at it in the same sense that I, I couldn't suddenly see the sudden change in wind power. But I think reading into wind catching systems, the idea of these sort of multi rotor systems actually is quite promising. Obviously, there's a lot of hurdles to overcome in terms of actually commercialising the technology, but they're being very ambitious by saying that they want to commercialise these sort of uh, multi-rotor systems in floating wind by 2022, which is uh, is a huge claim. What we mean when we're talking about these multi-rotor systems, especially when it comes to wind catching systems, the company is essentially a 300 meter by 300 meter square. Uh, instead of large turbines, you've got much smaller units. So I think it's around 117 that wind catching systems want in their sort of upper size limit. And, and is this a one or, or two? Or is this a, a two-blade rotor or three-blade rotor? So it's three blade rotors. So it's very much the same sort of turbine technology, but uh, very much placed alongside each other. In the same extent that you maybe see sort of uh, walls of fans and stuff, it's the same sort of idea, but just all in one sort of large unit. So you've actually got a larger swept area, basically per sort of footprint of a of a turbine system, basically. Um, I'm looking at the picture, and they look like I, I love the picture. Two, two, yeah. two turbines, two, two blades. In fact, I'm a like, single blade across the middle is what it looked like. It looks like from here, but maybe I'm I'm misreading the picture. I mean, they haven't actually stated anything yet, but I imagine it'll be three turb- uh, three turbines. I'm just gonna get a picture up to check that. It, yeah, it does look like two actually, so I'm not 100% sure. Re- regardless of that, I think it's it's still promising in the sense that it could it really increases the sort of acreage, so you've got much more dense sort of wind power capacity. So there's there's with obviously 117 turbines, each of one megawatt. Like you could also have 170 megawatts from a single system, which is obviously massive. There's no real detail on how cost competitive that would be, but there's there's a lot of benefits when it comes to actually having these multi-rotor systems. By having smaller, lighter blades, for example, you've got much lower inertia, so much less wind is needed to actually get the unit spinning in the first place. By sort of spinning them more at low speeds, you've got this much better power curve up to rated power, which means that over over a year with sort of wind wind speeds varying you just generate more power there's also then a benefit at the upper end because of these smaller systems you don't need to worry too much about the mechanical loading from the wind so you don't need to necessarily feather the blades as much to avoid mechanical damage and you might get a better rated power of these units at each system um, and then obviously with smaller turbines you've got much you've got further effects in sort of the less I'm, I'm looking on its website and they look like aeroplane propellers they are one piece of metal across a central uh, rotating hub. That's just takes us back <laughs> to a previous technology. I suppose it, it takes us back, but I think the the primary disadvantage of two-bladed systems of the past has been the fact that you can't really scale them without having sort of imbalances in your loading. Uh, well, if these are all out of alignment with each other and they're different points of their phase, the the overall effect will be will be a consistent one, but the the surge from one one propeller or another will be slightly different. Yeah, so hopefully it will all sort of balance itself out, and you won't get um, sort of massive um, uh, differences in balancing load, basically. So, um, so just I've got, I've got a question about this. Uh, uh, um, the the finance industry is the worst at changing um, for new energy ideas. Will this get funded, and, what, and will it get funded because these are they, they partnered with really big companies? Uh, so they partnered with really big companies, um, but I think in, 
it's difficult to say whether or not they'll get funded. Uh, you've always got schemes like the EU Horizon funding, which always seems to fund these sort of early stage innovation projects just to show that it's funding R&D. But then it's very much comes down to the private sector as to whether or not they're going to actually see these in, in actual projects. I mean, it'd be what the, the ideal would be to, to see is to see this in a pilot project as soon as possible and, sh- and actually demonstrating that it works. I think that's how we've seen like traditional concepts for floating winds have really accelerated. So that's, I think, the only way we're going to really see this, these sort of ideas getting funded. I mean, we've seen these sort of uh, multi-road systems before. I think Vestas tried a, I think it was like a 900 kilowatt system in 2016, but really haven't done much since. I think that, that though, comes much more down to a control issue. And I think when you've got so many different turbines that if they suddenly shut down can cause a an imbalance in loading within the system, then that's where you've got to really have a very very well managed control system i think that's something that could provide a barrier to to this technology um and it would be interesting to see how they overcome that as there's been very little stated about that so far okay but people like able are involved and they're involved in dogger bank i mean they 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 must know what they're doing yeah for sure um but I, I, again i think some of these companies do just stick their arm into projects uh, for the sake of showing innovation. I mean, we've seen RWE, for example, really backing kite power systems. And I think you, you do generally see them. Sort of, I'm not sure it's necessarily hedging their bets, but certainly just trying to keep an eye on, on innovation for the sake of it. The real proof of this will be when it actually is in a pilot project or actually put into or say able to say to, oh, we're going to replace X amount of turbines in the dog map project with one of this of one of this format. So, and when do you think that 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 can conceivably be done? Well, well, wind catching systems are saying 2022, which seems seems ambitious considering that projects would need to be being developed now. I think it, you could potentially see these systems before the end of the decade if projects are developed from the start using them in the next sort of sort of upcoming auctions that's the sort of more realistic time scale that we're looking at here um yeah i mean i'm looking at at, at, um, the floating systems and we've been looking at this them for about three years and i can't see that they've progressed very much i can't see that there's been any dramatic innovationary change or any kind of uh, installation of them so three years from now in 2024 it's unlikely a brand new one will be at the speed that everything else goes so unless they've got a, um, a demonstration already either in the works then you're right it can't happen by 2022 Closing wind, I think the, the cost reductions are going to have to start happening from now now that we're starting to see um, actual projects starting to be installed but, uh, but I think much more of the focus will start being placed on increasing the power output of these projects. So that's why obviously wind catching systems is getting a lot of attention this week. It's, what, it's also why other um, ideas are coming out for sort of in, implementing wave power on the platforms of floating wind. So that in the same sense we've seen fixed base offshore wind falling in price over the past 10 years, I think floating wind, that, that process really starts now, um, that we're actually starting to see projects come into place and people actually having the need to innovate because there are projects being uh, being proposed and being installed. Um, one of the really interesting projects that is getting a lot of attention at the moment is that is this one in Norway, which has actually always been very keen to to try new things in terms of the wind uh, wind sector. It actually, was one of the first to install floating wind. Yeah, in fact, first to install offshore wind as well. It was probably either Nor- Norway or well, one of the the Nordic countries. Yeah, I think it was Denmark. In Denmark, yeah. yeah. Let's move on. Let's just take a little look at the Netherlands. We did a. a um, a kind of country in focus 
on the Netherlands. It was you again, Harry. Um, the dominance of uh, Royal Dutch Shell in it, in in its economy. You know, we we forget that it's only 17 million people, it, and so a big company can dominate the economy. But but your with that view of it of 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 its emissions being heavily supported by oil, coal, and gas just shocked me a little bit. We're such a progressive country. So the Netherlands is obviously really ambitious in terms of uh, decarbonising the sectors of the economy that maybe we're used to seeing in the UK. Uh, obviously, they've been really quick to uptake electric vehicles. They've been actually quite progressive in terms of offshore wind, and they and they're pre- phasing out coal pretty quickly as well. So then, they're, along with the sort of leaders in Europe when it comes to that side of decarbonisation, but yeah, it's this it's this presence of companies like Royal Dutch Shell and the fact that they've got such a large petrochemicals industry that means that the reliance on fossil fuels will start will sort of linger on. I mean, they're based they're pretty much the world's largest trader, especially for their size of of petrochemicals, um, and they're very dependent on it economically. Um, not because they actually produce much, but because they actually act as a hub in terms of importing a lot, refining it, and then exporting it. So actually, the process of that itself is very energy intensive. I think we'll 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 really see start to see a lot of initiatives in place to reduce those emissions. The main thing for the Netherlands really will be how they can replace that. And I think as we'll start to see with a lot of these countries in Northern Europe, it will be a hydrogen based economy and actually becoming a hydrogen trading hub, right. um, especially with sort of the real demand centres for energy in Europe. In other areas of research, we've uh, we've always focused on problems where where um, if five or six people in the whole world take the decisions of which way a market is going to go because there's a series of dominant suppliers, it's really hard to forecast it because you don't know the minds of the five or six people. In the same way, um, if you've got an economy that's dominated by one large company and then there's probably four or five people in that large company who choose how quickly Shell um, decarbonises until the shareholders get involved. So the, the shareholder involvement uh, in Shell and the pressure that it's brought them under may be instrumental in making uh, a whole country economy change. Yeah, and actually, and one thing we haven't mentioned on the podcast before is is this um, fact that Royal Dutch Shell have actually been forced to reduce their emissions by by environmental activists, and they won that um, they've won a case in in a court, I think it's in the Hague, where they're suddenly going to have to pledge to reduce their emissions by forty five percent by twenty thirty, which was ahead of their their previous targets. I think those sort of init- those sort of campaigns having had success there will really start to proliferate through the rest of the energy sector. So so you've raised the question of of whether they could just move offshore, the Dutch company move these facilities somewhere else. Um, But but it might be in Dutch law, certainly is in things like global antitrust law, that if you make a decision in your home market, it has to be true for the rest of where you operate. Um, that, that it's, I mean, I, I could, couldn't imagine the shareholders being very happy if they just moved all this um, this work in chemicals to Africa and uh, and ran it there instead. It doesn't doesn't seem right because what they're selling is the intellectual know-how of Dutch people. I mean, and, and they they will they will want to keep it in uh, in, in in the Netherlands. Yeah, and to be honest, I think they will. I think it's. it's um... I think in terms of the the reputational damage it would do to a company if they very much shifted their operations to another country and did that, I think that would see uh, it would see the company sanctioned pretty heavily by um, the sort of the largest markets, so China, US, uh, and the EU. So I don't, I can't really see that 
uh, that Shell will be moving out of the Netherlands anytime soon. I mean, that being said, I think the politicians are do continue to sort of pussyfoot around it and they're being very uh, resistant of, uh, in the Netherlands, for example, raising carbon taxing above the EU ETS system because there is this fear that they will sort of start to move overseas in terms of some of their business. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a sort of to and fro really between these sort of large companies and governments in terms of actually how much progress is being made. Yeah, I understand. So, I mean, it's very, very much uh, um, investor pressure is needed. Legal pressure is needed because um, the politicians will bottle it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just moving on again. Um, so one of my pieces was about Lordstown. I hadn't really looked too hard at them except when uh, that Hindenburg research article came out showing that they uh, or, or, or claiming to show that the company had inflated its order book and using that to uh, raise more money. And this is really to do with people in America hating the looseness around um, SPAC uh, investments and how a, um, a special acquisition company can buy into uh, clean energy after it's taken its money from investors and then put it in the hands of somebody who's not perhaps as diligent in ensuring that the uh, that the company is on the right track and, and we hit this in i think it was september time for lordstown motors but now um they still have they only raised 650 million dollars or so in that in that spec but they they've still got 587 million of them but they're saying we may not have enough money to finish the uh, main uh, truck, the endurance pickup. I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I think that perhaps the success of the Ford 150F pickup shows that existing suppliers who are not EV companies may be doing better in the EV market now than we expected. And so the newbies uh, are being looked at on their merits. I mean, they're going out looking for more money, but. I honestly can't see anyone giving it to them. I mean, uh, except the uh, the companies that underwrote the SPAC. And it'll be about consumer demand. You know, what are the best trucks? What which 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 trucks get the best reputation? I mean, Rivian has had a, a long, slow build to its it being in volume manufacturing and it's still not there and it's still going to be i believe this year it's going to start to uh, start taking uh, real orders or actually delivering product and rivian is apparently going to go for an ipo for 70 billion dollars <laughs> any day now if it, it could be that rivian has now been around for 10 years and as a result people believe that it has it is the real deal and it can stand up to ford but if Ford's got a good vehicle in the exact same specification of market, Rivian's going to suffer. And the share price of, of, of an IPO there will probably reflect that. And, and if that's going to close Lordstown, which it, this looks like it, I, I mean, I'm not seeing how they're going to. Th I think if they stay with the 587 million and that's all they've got, they will lower their ambitions and produce less vehicles. And that will make them less relevant in the medium term. Perhaps in the long term, they'll survive it. But um, it means that they won't have the impact that they had hoped to have. You know, I know that General Motors is an earlier investor, but they have their own 
they, they've kind of got their own games now. So I can't see them coming to the rescue. So I can't see this surviving. And on the back of that, I, I'm really interested to see what happens to Rivian's um, uh, IPO, especially given how uh, Tesla and a few others have been uh, have fallen somewhat from their height um, because the the clean investments uh, uh, road you know momentum has just faltered slightly. I think that's. Can I give a quick plug for our forthcoming webinar, which will be held on Wednesday, June the 23rd at 4 p.m. UK time, 11 a.m. Eastern. And it's about uh, how to turn gas and oil pipelines into green revenue. And Peter, you're hosting that. I'm sure it's going to be a good event.